Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to be together once again. And let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Listen to God's word this morning. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let me read that again. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's no question in my mind that what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 is absolutely true. It doesn't really take much meditation to see its veracity. In that verse, the Apostle Paul said that we must make the best use of the time because what? The days are evil. Do you have any question in your mind that that is true? The days are evil. If you are paying any attention to what is happening in our society today and around the world, you would know that the days are evil. But this is something that Paul said in a a general sense. Generally speaking, the days are evil because all the days that we live in this world are subject to pain. And they're subject to temptation and doubt and conflict and discouragement. Who could deny it? This is similar to what our Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. The Lord Jesus said this, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, its own trouble. Each day has its own trouble. The days are evil. Each day presents its own anxieties. In other words, Each day brings with itself its own manifestations of evil. Each day is, as it were, a reminder that we do live in a fallen world over which Satan has much influence. Each day we see the power of these principalities and these authorities that we talked about last week in the heavenly places as they exercise their evil schemes upon the world. But we can make it personal. For instance, when you come home from work, And you enter your house and you hear some of the members of your family argue and and fight. You're reminded that the days are evil. When you encounter tension in that particular relationship with your coworker or relative, you are reminded that the days are evil. When you turn on the news and you hear about more murders and divisions and chaos, you're reminded that the days are evil. When your kids do something and you respond in unrestrained anger, you're reminded that the days are evil. Of course, most of you don't go through that, of course. Just a few of us. In short, there is plenty of evidence all around us that the days are evil. No question about that. As as one commentator said, it is as though each day has a way of snatching a little bit of life away from us. The days are evil. They bring their own anxiety with them. But this morning, we're looking at chapter 6, verse 13 of Ephesians, and I submit to you that what Paul has in mind in that verse is different. In this verse, Paul is talking about something he hasn't mentioned before, the evil day. 
the evil day. What is the evil day? This is indeed a very difficult question to answer. Let me give you some reasons as to why these words bring their own unique challenges when it comes to understanding what they mean. The expression, the evil day, is found nowhere else in the writings of the Apostle Paul, which makes it difficult to understand, only here. In addition to that, and to complicate matters a bit more, the commentaries that I read were of little help, if any. There are basically three major opinion, opinions floating around in the world of scholars out there concerning what the meaning of the evil day is. Let me give you some of those options. Uh, some of the most common ones. First, according to some, the evil day that Paul mentions in chapter 6, verse 6, 13, is just the plural, I mean, the, the singular version of the plural in chapter 5, verse 16. But the meaning is the same. Okay, so he, Paul is talking about the same thing that he talked about in chapter 5, verse 16. John MacArthur, for example, is of that opinion. He says that the evil day is every single day. It's every single day. That's one option. Second, some say that the evil day is a day of more intense satanic attacks upon a Christian, which can be manifested in unique conflicts, temptations, sorrows, etc. Matthew Henry was of that opinion. He said that the evil day is the day of temptation or of any sore affliction. That's what Matthew Henry said. And there is a third opinion, a third option is that the evil day is a day in which worldwide persecution will be unleashed upon the church before the coming of the Lord. Let's take a vote. And no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. That would be a mistake. But uh, let me tell you that in my uh, humble opinion, I was not convinced by any of them. I still remain skeptic of all of those interpretations. Uh, and I must also tell you that of all the biblical commentators that I interacted with uh, for the last several weeks, only one proposed something different, something different from the rest. It was the old Puritan, of course, old Puritan, William Gurnall. And um, I have quoted him many times and he did not necessarily convince me at first, but he started me on this journey. But before I tell you what I think the evil day is, we'll do some, some groundwork to get there. Let me say first what I, it seems to be clear, right? It is clear that Paul is not talking about the same truth he conveyed in chapter 5, verse 16. If that were the case, why not use the same expression in the plural form, right? He could have said that you may be able to withstand in these evil days, but he didn't do that. He used the singular. Second, consider this. In the original language, Paul says it this way. That you may be able to withstand in that day, the evil day. There's an emphasis on the, on the singular and the unique nature of this particular day. This is not like any other day. This day seems to stand on its own. That much is clear. What is the evil day then, could this unique day called the evil day be a day of temptations and trials that are out of the ordinary? I suppose it could be. It could be a day in which the schemes of the devil and the operations of these principalities and the powers of verse 12 take on a more aggressive and a more focused approach. 
It could be that this evil day consists of a greater amount of pressure exerted upon us by the evil forces that would cause us to fall. And it could very well be that Paul didn't give us a precise definition of this evil day so that we would be prepared at any point. I certainly see the validity to that argument. If this is the case, then you must always be prepared for satanic attacks of unusual strength. And this is true. Moreover, these satanic attacks could take the form of fierce persecution, oppression, suffering, trial, and unusual forms of sorrow. And it is absolutely true that we must always be ready for when days of extraordinary difficulty come our way. In this sense, the experience of Job, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, we could say that that is, might be the supreme example of the evil day. Could his experience be an example and a picture of the evil day? After all, if you think about it, Satan himself unleashed all his hatred and power upon this man and brought about unimaginable sorrow and distress. Is that a picture of the evil day that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.13? Well, it could be. But then how do you know that you have experienced the evil day? Do you have to go through the, the same amount of suffering and sorrow and distress as Job? Would a little less sorrow qualify for the evil day? How do we determine that? Can you or I say that we have experienced the evil day? And is it up to the individual person to decide what counts as the evil day? Difficult questions indeed. Now, the difficulty of those questions leads me to think that Paul has something different in mind when he spoke of the evil day because it is singular. It is a singular day, meaning, yes, the days are evil, but there seems to be only one evil day. And here's another question to add to the difficulty. Will all Christians have to endure the evil day or just some? Well, interestingly enough, the New American Standard Bible, which is one of the most literal translations of the Bible, is very instructive at this point. It puts it like this. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The New American Standard Version of the Bible is, gives it a more definitive sense. For these translators, the evil day is coming to all. There's no escaping the evil day. So what do we make of this evil day then? Let me point out one sentence found in verse 13 that I believe unlocks the meaning of the evil day. It is quite interesting, and I think it deserves our careful attention. It is the one sentence that caught my eyes from the beginning, and it dominated my efforts to interpret the evil day. Do you know which sentence I'm speaking of? That's okay. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm referring to having done all, having done all, or as the new American standard Bible puts it, having done everything. Interesting expression, isn't it? It has the sense of completion. In other words, when the evil day comes, there will be nothing left for you to do. When the evil day comes, you will have done everything. 
There will be no more pressing forward. There will be no more struggling. There will be no more wrestling. There will be no more fighting, no more resisting, no more defending. You will have done all. In this sense, the evil day brings with it the culmination of all spiritual activity. Do you see how revealing this is? Last week, I said that there never comes a point in our lives when we can just cruise along the path of spirituality without wrestling. Didn't I say that? Do you remember? In this life, we will never reach a level of absolute spiritual rest because as long as we are alive, the battle will continue. We wrestle and we will wrestle until the very end. In light of that truth that we learned from verse 12, how can Paul say, having done everything? Can you ever say, can you ever say, I have done all? I have done it all. Can you ever say, I have exhausted all my spiritual efforts? I am done. Can you ever say those words in this life? Well, as long as tomorrow is coming, you really can't. The days are evil. So if you were able to withstand today's evil, tomorrow is coming. Therefore, you haven't done all. You are not done. Do you see what I mean? If we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil and we do so continually, at no point in our lives can we say, I have done everything. Except on the evil day. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to Paul's amazing words. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Did you, did you get that? I have I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't know about you, but those statements sound very definitive and final to me. And what did Paul say in Ephesians 6, 13? Having done all. And what did Paul say in 2 Timothy 4, 7? Basically, he says, I have done it all. Did you notice that? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. How can Paul say that? Well, the answer is in the preceding verse, meaning verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Do you see it now? The only time when a Christian can say, I have done everything, is when the time of his or her departure has come. In other words, the only reason why Paul could say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, is because he was about to die. In light of this impending death, Paul could look back and say, I have done everything. This was the last letter he wrote. 
This was the last letter he wrote. When, what then is the evil day? The evil day is the day of our departure. Or as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. And that day, the evil day is coming to every single one of us in this room. And when that day comes, you will have done all. You will be done. There will be nothing left for you to do. The evil day or the day of death is the day that in a mysterious way brings together both our earthly and eternal existence. The evil day is the day that catapults us into judgment and the eternality for which we were created. That's the evil day. Therefore, the evil day is not simply a reference to the fact that the days are evil in this fallen world. The evil day is a reference to the ultimate evil brought about by sin and Satan, namely death. Death is evil because death is a contradiction to who God is for God is life. Death was introduced by Satan through the sin he brought about in the temptation of Adam and Eve. And this is the evil day to which all humanity is headed. Ever since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, we have all been born into a world in which the evil day is inevitable. We must all face it. And behind this evil day is Satan and the principalities and the powers who have thrown humanity into this unending cycle uh, between life and death. This, I believe, is the exact point made by the writer of Hebrews who said this in chapter 2, verse 14, in reference to the incarnation and the death of Jesus. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, listen to this, he might destroy the one who has power over death, namely the devil. Power over death. Notice how the Bible makes a direct connection between Satan and death. We can understand from this then that death is evil because it is the outcome of a satanic scheme brought about in the Garden of Eden. This is the ultimate evil, death. And it is the evil day. And no, it is not the logical and the natural consequence of human existence as some have tried to justify it within a naturalistic worldview. They have to try to explain death away. And Satan, along with these principalities and the powers of evil, are always encouraging. They're always promoting. And they're always tempting to sin. And death is the wages of sin. Meaning death is what sin deserves. Therefore, Satan and sin are behind the evil reality of death. It is clear then that this evil day will come in this life to every single one of us. But wait a minute. This is getting a little confusing. How can the evil day be the day of death when Paul says that we need to remain standing? <laughs> Isn't that a little tricky? How can the, the evil day be the day of death when Paul says that we need to remain standing when that day comes? How can we possibly remain standing if we are talking about death? Good question. 
Let me try to explain. I believe the standing firm that Paul has in mind at the end of verse 13 is a spiritual standing. Or better yet, an eschatological standing. In other words, a standing with a view to the coming judgment. It is then an eternal standing firm. If you think about it, death and judgment come hand in hand. The writer of Hebrews once again said it this way. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes what? Judgment. William Gurnall, once again, made this very sobering comment about the evil day of death. He said this, death was never meant to be a place to protect sinners from divine judgment, but a holding place to ensure that they actually go through judgment. Death ensures the coming judgment. What did Paul say? In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle Paul speaks of the day of wrath. The evil day or the day of death is the guarantee that makes the day of wrath unavoidable. Unavoidable to those who die in unbelief. Someone is reacting to the teaching, which is good. It's good. It's making an impact. Therefore, the question this morning is not, will we experience the evil day? That's not the question. We all will. Rather, the question for every one of us this morning is this. When that day comes, will we remain standing firm before the presence of God? Please turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, verse 5. Psalm chapter 1, verse 5. Here, of course, the, the psalmist is giving us a comparison between the blessed man and the wicked man. And he's, he's saying what it means to be blessed. But then he finishes the psalm in verse 5 with the following words. Consider the words of the psalmist. Therefore, the wicked will not what? Will not stand. The wicked will not stand in what? In the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Let me ask you, what type of standing is the psalmist speaking of? Well, it is an eschatological standing. It is a standing that endures even after divine judgment. It is an end time standing. Some, says the psalmist, namely the wicked, will not stand with the righteous when the day of judgment comes. Therefore, the righteous will stand. They will remain standing even after the evil day comes to them. I ask you this, my friend. Will you remain standing firm when the evil day comes? comes to you. In other words, what I'm asking you is this. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? Well, how in the world can we remain standing in the evil day? What is strong enough to resist the ultimate attack of death? Paul gives us the answer in no uncertain terms. In verse 13 of, of Ephesians chapter 6. What is the answer? How do we remain standing 
when the evil day comes? Here's the answer. Jesus. Jesus. Now, where do you see that? Paul said, take up the whole armor of God. He didn't talk about Jesus. What do you mean? I don't see Jesus here. Jesus is not mentioned in this verse. Yes, he is. My friends, trying to understand the armor of God apart from Jesus is like trying to understand math without numbers. The call to take up the armor of God has everything to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. If you would, please consider all the pieces of the armor once again, beginning in verse 14. What is the first piece of the armor? The belt of truth. Let me ask you this. Who is the truth? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, the breastplate of righteousness. Who is the righteous one of God? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Who has brought peace between God and man? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, the shield of faith. Who is the author and object of our faith? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, the helmet of salvation. Who is the source and the end goal of our salvation? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Who is at the very center of all of God's written and redemptive revelation? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see why we need the armor in order to stand in the evil day? Because if we don't have the armor, it means we don't have Christ. Therefore, the call to take up the whole armor of God is a call to look to Christ. The armor of God makes no sense apart from Jesus. The call to take up the armor of God is then an invitation to make much of the Lord Jesus and what we have in him. Let me put it in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Here is the invitation to put on the whole armor of God is this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a summary of everything. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? That's the invitation to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to look to him through the eyes of faith, to rest upon him, knowing that in him our life is secure, even in the evil day of our death. This is how we overcome both our fear of the evil day that is quickly approaching and death itself, which we all must face. We must make much of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Moreover, this means that the more we clothe ourselves in this armor, meaning Listen to this, the more we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the less this world will attract us. Here's what I mean. The more you establish your heart with the belt of truth, and the more you desire the breastplate of righteousness, and the more you wear the shoes of the gospel of peace, and the more you hold the shield of faith, and the more you contemplate and put on the helmet of salvation, and the more you use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the less your affections will be attached to this earth. Listen to William Gurnall once again, as he spoke about Paul's readiness to depart from this world. This is what he said. And I quote, Paul was ever sending more and more of his heart out of this world so that by the time he came to die, all his affections were packed up and gone, which made him more ready to follow. 
end quote. Then Gurnall adds this call. Oh, he says, loosen the roots of your affections from the world and the tree will fall more easily. In the same line of thought, Samuel Rutherford said this, and I, and I quote, build your nest in no tree here on earth for God has sold the forest to death. Let me put it this way. The call to take up the whole armor of God is a call to feed the Christ center longings of your heart and to starve to death the fleshly longings of your eyes in order that one day you may be able to say with full confidence for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. For those of us who long to see the face of Jesus, the evil day will be nothing more than the realization of our deepest desire. And we will be fully satisfied. Christian, are you living for Christ or are you deceiving yourself? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or are you deceiving yourself? One contemporary pastor wrote these sobering words. Please listen carefully. And I quote, I am afraid that some of you are not ready to die. That some of you are still clinging to empty toys and trinkets of this world. For some of you to live is your possessions, your wealth, or your legalism. Or maybe, and God forbid, some of you even live for sin or friendships, even things that are legitimate in themselves, but you are not living for Christ. You are not ready to die. You are not really living. You could die at any moment, end quote. Now, listen to me. I don't want to sound morbid or overly fatalistic, but please know this. To say that this might be your last time hearing a sermon and a call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ might be thought of as an exaggeration, but it could be very well true. Are you prepared for the evil day? Are you taking up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm after having done all? Are you living as though you were dying? Do you realize that I am preaching as a dying man to dying people? I am preaching as a dying man, as a dying man to dying people. My friend, we all will face the evil day. And when the evil day of your death comes, only one question will matter. And it is this, will you remain standing or will you fall under the righteous judgment of God? There's a risk at this point, And I want to make sure no one goes home confused regarding this last question. So let me be very clear. The answer to this last question is very different for Christians and non-Christians. That distinction must be clear in your mind. So let me speak first to those of you in this room who are Christians. I want you to go home filled with Christ-centered hope. Death is the evil day. 
but through his life, Christ has removed the condemnation of it. He fulfilled all justice and now God's law is fully satisfied. Death is the evil day, but through his death, Christ has removed the power of it. Or as John Owen famously said, death died in the death of Christ. And finally, my Christian friend, death is the evil day, but through his resurrection, Christ has removed the sting of it. And we can say with the Apostle Paul, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's for you, my Christian friend. On the other hand, my friend, if you are not a Christian, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and if you persist in your unbelief, I do not want you to go home with any hope. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. You must know that if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not stand in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous, righteous death will swallow up, swallow you up. You will fall and you will be crushed under the righteous wrath of God in hell for all eternity. You will not stand. You will fall when the evil day comes to you, but you may argue with me. I am trying to be good. I am trying to do my best to which I would immediately reply to you with God's word and say, there is no one good, not even one. You're full of sin. There's no good in you. Here's what God's word says in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sins, O Lord, who could stand? You know what that is? That is a rhetorical question which means the answer is embedded in the question itself. The answer is no one could stand. If the Lord dealt with any of us according to our sins and transgressions, we would all be crushed under his holy wrath. But listen to how the psalmist continues in verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With God, there is forgiveness. How? Through Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was crushed. He was crushed under the wrath of his Father. And in fact, the Bible says that it pleased God to crush him. Jesus was crushed under the righteous wrath of God so that sinners could stand in the judgment. But you must believe. In Christ, you must receive his forgiveness, which is freely offered to those who come to him in repentance and faith. So I have just one question for you. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection? He's the only hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you praise. We give you praise because we know that even though death is approaching and we are dying people, we thank you for that, for the fact that for those who are in Christ, 
death is not the end, but it's only the beginning of truly, truly our best life, which will be with the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And we thank you for the promise of eternal life that is found in him. But I do pray for those in this room who are walking far from Christ, who may be here this morning having the appearance of godliness, but there is no power in their lives. There is no true sense of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will open their eyes this morning. If there's anyone in this room or listening online that maybe have no desire for Christ, I pray, Lord, that you will bring them to repentance and faith in him. I pray that you will awaken many to the reality that we will all face the evil day. And the question is, will we remain standing firm? Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the victory both now and forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.